We'll be in Hebrews chapter 5 tonight. Does anyone need a scripture? Anyone else need one? All right. Hebrews chapter 5. Last week we looked at, uh, what, three verses? And uh, didn't get too far, but some wonderful truths um, and comfort in those passages. And the comforting truths are gone. There they are. All right. Someone last week asked me, what's your system for highlighting and underlining? I said, there's absolutely none at all. I just think, what, what pretty color do I want to use next? And that's, I have a loose, I have a very loose system. And uh, for a while in my devotions, I'd have four color pens. I'd have a red, green, blue, and black. And red is sins to avoid. Green is ways to grow. Blue is character of God. And, uh, and then black is like, you know, everything else, just facts, observations. And so that's, you'll find my, like when there's something bad, I just have to go to the color red for some reason. That's why. All right. So, but other than that, I'm just, I'm just scratching things out and uh, picking colors as I go. So if you're more of an analytical mind and you like more of a system, don't follow my system. All right. Come up with your own. All right. We are in chapter five of the book of Hebrews. And uh, this is going to be continuing the discussion of Jesus Christ as our great high priest. We've seen this introduced at the beginning of the book, and, uh, and then uh, just recently in chapter 4, he starts to flesh out what does it mean that Jesus is our great high priest. And uh, verse 14 talks about how since we have this high priest, we can hold our, fast our confession. We have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. He was tempted as we are. And so we can boldly and confidently go near to the throne of grace and uh, receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And so that's where we are today. Uh, and in chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to continue that treatment, that discussion on Jesus as our high priest. Let's begin actually just by reading verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said uh, to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. There we go. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so I mentioned this last week as we teased and looked ahead to this passage, that what he's going to be talking about is laying out the qualifications of Jesus as our high priest. Uh, we saw at the end of chapter 4, we are invited to run to him and we can do so boldly, but now he's going to answer the question, well, why should I run confidently to Jesus? Why should I run dependently to him in my weakness, in my need, and in my fear? And these, these verses are going to lay out, I see, three different reasons for uh, why we can be confident in that. 
And the first one I think we see in verse 1 is that we can run to Jesus as our high priest because it's his job. Because it's his job. Verse 1. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So here we see a priest's job description. We see, first of all, the pool, the selection pool. Where do you pick, from whom do you pick a high priest? From among men, right? It has to be a, a, a human being, right? And, and it's also, you see this word, appointed. Well, what does this indicate for us? You don't choose this role for yourself. You don't decide, I am going to be the next great high priest. Um, you are appointed. You are chosen. You're picked. Look down in verse 4 of the same passage. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. All right? So a high priest is taken from among men. It's appointed by God. And then what do they do? They act on behalf of men in relation to God. So a priest works for the people, for their benefit, by approaching God on their behalf. That's what a high priest does, right? So if, if a high priest was standing before you, he's saying, I, I'm on your side, right? I'm working for you. I'm chosen from among you, and I'm working on your behalf in relation to God. And what do they do? What do they bring before God? Gifts and sacrifices, all right? So here, we start to see the reason why they have to go before God, and it's because of our sin. And there needs to be gifts and sacrifices offered for sinful people. So we see this high priest job description. Skip down in verse 5, and now we see the connection to Christ. So also, in that same way, just as, just as human priests were not a chosen, they didn't choose this for themselves, they were appointed, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed, same word as we see in verse 1, by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he uses two quotations here to speak of Christ's divine appointment as high priest. We've seen Psalm 2, 7 already quoted in this book. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. The second one here, you are a priest forever, is a quotation of Psalm 110, verse 4. And he's going to highlight here this guy named Melchizedek. Now don't get sidetracked by this guy Melchizedek, right? right now, yet, okay? He'll be referenced again down in verse 10, and then in chapter 7, when we get to chapter 7, we're going to go, we're going to go full Melchizedek mode in chapter 7, all right? So don't get sidetracked with it now. We'll ignore him for this moment. He'll get into Melchizedek in a second, but for right now, he is referenced there. But here's the point. Jesus was chosen from among men. If he's going to be a high priest, he has to be chosen from among men, in order for him to be chosen from among men, what must be true about Jesus? 
he has to be a man, right? If he's going to be representative for humanity, he must be a human being. And so Jesus has to be made like one of us to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And so if Jesus is our high priest, what is his job description? To work on your behalf in relation to God to offer, ultimately, himself, right? It's the high priest's job to deal with sinful, wayward people and approach God on their behalf. Um, have, you ever, have you ever gone to the wrong person for help before? <laughs> right, you're, uh, you're looking for someone at the store, looking for something at the store, and you stop someone who th you think is a store employee, <laughs> And they look at you and say, ah, don't work here, right? That happens to me all the time. I don't, maybe it's because I'm wearing my, like, work clothes, you know, my polo and my khakis over to Target, you know, and, and uh, people are like, hey, can you help me with this? And I have to tell them, no, I don't work here, right? I, that's, not, that's not me. When we talk about Jesus and his job as our high priest, if you go to him in your weakness, in your waywardness, in your sin, Jesus is not going to look at you sideways and say, that's not my department, right? That's not my job. No, his eternal job description is to act on your behalf. We saw this last week. What is Jesus doing right now? Right now, he is acting as your high priest. And he won't be surprised when you come to him saying, I messed up. I blew it. I failed. I sinned. Right? He's not going to wonder why you're divulging all your problems to him. In fact, he expects it. He's looking for that. He anticipates it. He hopes that you do it. If you were appointed to a job in which you were, to, you were supposed to deal with weak, sinful people, you'd be shocked if all you got were perfect, self-righteous people. And yet sometimes we feel like we can only run to Jesus when we're super righteous. And if Jesus could be shocked, he would be at all with the sinful, rebellious, broken, angry people who are sulking. He, he would be shocked that the sinful, rebellious, broken, angry people who are sulking far away from him are too nervous to approach him. Right? Why, why aren't you coming to me? Yes, I see your sin. Yes, I see your weakness. Yes, I see your anger. Yes, I see your rebellion. I'm the one who's been appointed to help you, right? And we think that we have to do some, have some work to do before we run desperately to Jesus. Imagine a doctor who only had perfectly healthy people visit his office. Right? He'd think, I didn't take this job to see healthy people. I took this job to see sick people. And perhaps some of you are thinking of a verse in your mind, something that Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's like, I, my job is to deal with sinners. You're a sinner? You qualify to come to me, right? In fact, he called the sinners, the publicans, the tax collectors, right? Those who, those who were the outcasts were the ones that Christ was bringing to himself while the self-righteous Pharisees who thought, we're good, we're fine, couldn't come to him. And so we, as we look back at verse 1, right, what's the first word in verse 1? For, 
linked right here to verse 16, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act this way. So he's looking at the job description of the high priest to give reason why you can run to him confidently. It's his job. This is what Jesus does. He's our high priest. Any questions, comments on that before we move on to the next qualification? All right. As we look down at verse 2, we see the second reason why we can come boldly to Jesus. And again, he starts off by using human uh, earthly priests as an illustration. And we see in verse 2 why it's so important for a high priest to sympathize and identify with humanity. He, talking about the high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with sickness. Weakness, sorry. In other words, a high priest does not go about his job in a robotic way. Detached from the needs of the people. Because he is a human himself, and he is beset with weakness, it actually impacts how the high priest goes about his job. And how does a high priest go about his job? What's the manner in which he approaches people? He approaches them gently. Gently. He doesn't get impatient or angry because he knows weakness, right? Here's the reason why he can deal gently. Since he himself is beset with weakness. This goes back up to chapter 4 where he he sympathizes with us because he was tempted in every point like as we are, yet without sin. And so his experience as a human being gives him a compassion, gives him a sympathy, gives him a gentleness. And who is he gentle toward? The ignorant and the wayward. How would you differentiate these two? Describe the, these two different groups. Yeah. Ignorance is not knowing mm-hmm. that you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And wayward is just going ahead and doing it if you want to get out Good, yeah. So, so the, the, the ignorant is... Maybe you don't, you're not fully aware of how you're wrong. You're ignorant. Wayward is you're just straying, right, like a sheep. You know where you're supposed to be, but you're not. You're going your own way. You're wayward. An ignorant one is someone who doesn't even know the extent of his own sin. The wayward one is someone who is wandering, straying, deceived. And those are the people whom Jesus is gentle with. I mean, those are the two types of people that I'm the most impatient with, right? The ignorant one, you should know better. The wayward one, you know what you should be doing, but you're not, right? Those are the people that we're probably the least gentle with. But those are the ones that the high priest is gentle toward, right? You know what it's like to try to receive help from someone who is competent but lacks compassion. They possess the knowledge and ability to help you. Perhaps it's even their job to help you, but they really wish they didn't have to. Have you ever been treated by a doctor or nurse that felt like you were just inconveniencing them the whole time? (laughs) 
Do we see Jesus that way? Right? We're, we're ignorant. We're wayward. We are going our own way. We go to him again and again. God, I've done it again. I've, I've, I've failed again. And perhaps we might even view or imagine Jesus as being impatient, inconvenienced with our returning to him yet again. But Jesus doesn't like that. He deals gently. And now let's look at a contrast uh, between earthly priests and Jesus. What contrast or, or difference does verse 3 highlight uh, to differentiate Jesus from high priests, earthly high priests? Yes? Priests forever. He is a priest forever, absolutely. And that's something that's going to be highlighted in this book. Bobby? Who offered sacrifice? The human high priest had to offer a sacrifice for who? For himself. Why did he have to offer a sacrifice for himself? Because he's a sinner, right? He is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And so we're going to see a shortcoming of human priests, that their weakness, their weakness, so in other words, when you see weakness in relation to high priests here, this includes sin not just human weakness. And that's why it says, because of this, because of what? Because of weakness, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the sins of the people. But because Jesus was sinless, there is no need for him to take care of himself first. So what does that mean? He can give all his attention to your sins. Right? Imagine if you had a doctor who's like, I'll give you your injection real quick. I just have to give me myself one first, right? Right? No, he can give all his intention to you and your weakness and your sin. Jesus is our perfect high priest. So in what sense is Jesus beset with weakness? We've talked about this a little bit last week, right? If, if Jesus is sinless, does that completely lose his ability to sympathize with our weakness? In what sense is Jesus weak if he's not sinful? What's that? His human side, right? So he experienced all the weakness of humanity. He has feelings. He has feelings, yep. In fact, we looked at, uh, we, we, we pointed to this, we, we, we looked ahead to this uh, down in verses 7 and 8, where we see his weakness. And it's prefaced right here in verse 7 as in the days of his flesh, right? So in his humanity, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was learned because of his, he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So this is showing the genuineness of his weakness. He offered up loud cries and tears. And, and again, something we looked at last week, while he never participated in sin, he knew that he was about to become sin for us. And we see this this pointing to the Garden of Gethsemane when he cried out to the Father. And all of this makes him a sympathetic and gentle high priest. Again, we, we read in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I am gentle, meek, I am lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. So approach him, not just because it's his job, but because he's good at his job. To have a competent doctor is one thing. To have a competent doctor with a good bedside manner is another. To sense a level of compassion and care rather than the feeling that you're inconveniencing them with your sickness. Jesus does not stand there and say, Really? You're back again? Didn't I help you last week? 
Yeah, or yesterday would be more accurate. Weren't you here like five minutes ago, right? No, he's not like that toward us. Why? This is what he does. And he is gentle because he himself was beset with weakness. And he was tempted in every point like as we are. And, and, and the very things that cause us to shrink away from Jesus are the very things that actually qualify us to run to him. We are weak and sinful, which means we're candidates for his grace. He deals gently and patiently with you, and he fully expects to deal with ignorant and wayward people on a regular basis. He has made those desperate cries before. He has felt that weakness, and so he deals gently with you. He gets it. There's one way that I see that uh, gives us boldness, confidence, to approach him. We've seen who he helps. We've seen the way he helps. Now let's look at how he helps. What does he do to help us? What does he accomplish for us? Well, let's look back at the earthly priests. Verse 1, their job description, they go before God to offer gifts and sacrifices. Notice that's in the plural. Why is that plural? Gifts, plural, and sacrifices, plural. Because sins are plural. All right, but you know, yeah, but what about, uh, why does he have to do it again after paying for, you know, sacrificing for all those multiple sins? Because we're human. We're human. <laughs> it's temporary, right? It's not, it's not the final solution. Um, we'll see this later in Hebrews, but the, the blood of, of bulls and goats can never take away sin. And so the sacrifices and gifts were never meant to actually cleanse our conscience. And they, were, they were to basically, a, it was a ritual clean, clean, cleanness to point to our, our deeper need uh, for the, our conscience being cleansed. And so they offer gifts and sacrifices because sins keep happening and these gifts and sacrifices are insufficient to actually fix the problem. But then, look down in verses 8 through 10 and we see the accomplishment of Jesus. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so in these two verses, we see his accomplishment, what he did, and how this gives us boldness. In what sense, let's dig into these phrases here, because there's perhaps some confusing ones. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Can someone tell me, in what sense did Jesus learn obedience? What it costs. Okay, what it costs. Good. Right. More so that he experienced it. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise he wouldn't have if he wasn't man. Right. So he's learning to work through the experience of it. Yeah. And, and what exactly is he experiencing or learning or seeing through human eyes? What about obedience? It's painful. It's painful, right? He learned obedience through what? What he suffered. So let's, let's clarify in what sense he did not learn obedience, right? He didn't enter this world as one that had an inclination toward disobedience, who had to endure suffering in order to learn how to obey, right? That's not what we're talking about. Uh, yes, Lynette? Well, before he came to earth, he didn't have to obey. He was part of the true 
And so when you take the pen on the end, he has a word for Monday. What God, what God the Father told him to do. Well, I think I think there's a sense in which there, there's I mean there's we know there's always been a perfect relationship between the members of the Trinity, right? And so I think the emphasis is less on the fact of what is obedience, and more on the fact of obeying through suffering, or or obeying in the midst of suffering that he could only experience as a man, right? Yes, Dennis. I think another point did he make that more like most of the that he is not weary of. Mm-hmm. The ignorance, the waiver, mm-hmm. something he's not used to because he is perfect. Mm-hmm. And he has to keep himself humble. He has to keep himself as God. And therefore, he learns patience as having to deal with humans. Okay, yeah. So there's, he's always as God, has, he's always dealt with the ignorant and the wayward. But now as a human, he's experiencing the suffering that comes when you're on the receiving end of the ignorant and the wayward, right? Yes, <laughs> that's right. So, so as God, you know, he, he's, he's not affected by the sin of man. But when he becomes a man, he is affected by the sin of man, right? He's suffering. And so he's experiencing what obedience is like and suffering for it. That's something that he did not experience before entering this world. Yes. So, not to dig too deep, but as uh, a young man, boy, mm-hmm. Scripture says that he grew in wisdom. Mm-hmm. So that could sort of point to how he's learning uh, the suffering part of being perfect obedience to God. Yeah, what is wisdom? It's, it's applying what you know to real life situations. Right? So we saw in the temple that young Jesus had knowledge, right? But as he grew and he's experiencing normal human situations of life, he is taking his knowledge and applying it wisely to the normal situations that we face every day. And in that way, he's learning obedience. He's growing in wisdom. Um, and so there's a very real sense. It's not that he had to like find out, like, what is this? But it's more of, I'm going to experience it personally, right? I'm going to have first-hand knowledge of what this is. He's always obeyed God the Father perfectly. Hebrews 10.7 quotes where he says, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. Jesus learned obedience in the sense that he experienced what obedience looks like in a fallen world. And isn't that a comfort? Jesus experienced what obedience looks like if you're a weak human being. And so he knows what we have to go through when we have to obey. To obey the Father in a world filled with sin is to experience suffering and hardship. Lynette. Well, it's funny that when, that when he was 12, when he went to the temple, mm-hmm. they couldn't find him, his parents couldn't find him. And after they found him, it said he continued in obedience to his parents. Yeah. That wasn't suffering, that was obedience Right. Yeah, yeah. He submitted to his earthly, sinful parents. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Jesus learns obedience in the sense that he experiences it. And even more so for Jesus, because his, what is his mission? What does he have to do in order to obey God? He has to sacrifice, right? He has to suffer. That's the very essence of his obedience. 
in order to obey, he must suffer and die. And so he's not just experiencing obedience in the midst of suffering, but for him to suffer and die was how he was to obey. Now, why is this such an important point? Well, the original readers in the context were experiencing the harsh reality that loyalty to Christ invited suffering and trials into their lives. And they had to learn heart obedience through what they suffered. And what's the temptation to do? To, what, what temptation do we have when we realize that obedience to Christ brings on suffering? Run away. Run away, right? Or perhaps ease up a little bit, mm, right? Maybe if I can cool it, you know, I won't receive as much pushback. But Jesus provided an example of one who learned obedience through what he suffered. One commentator writes, He set out from the start on the path of obedience to God and learned by the sufferings which came his way in consequence just what obedience to God involved in practice in the conditions of human life on earth. He experienced what it means to obey as a human. And in that sense, he, he learns. So when we see learn, I want you to think, right, experienced. First-hand experience. And being made perfect. Whoa, what's going on here? Now, this process right here produces this. Okay? And being made perfect. What does that mean? Anyone? He didn't sin. That's exactly right. Okay, so, so David says maybe the sense of completion. So was Jesus incomplete? Completion of task. All right. Any other thoughts there? What this might be referring to? What's that? Proven character. Okay. So it's... it's, it's uh, he passes the test, so to speak, right? Okay, good. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, he had to die first. Yes. So the source of eternal salvation, he had to die, so then he had to ascend. So that being made perfect, being made complete, and just finishing it. Like, it is finished, we can now mm -hmm. also be a part of that. Okay. The ascension. So, so maybe perfect in the sense of he's completely finished, accomplished his mission, right? He's made it through, okay? This is actually something that we looked at a little bit earlier in chapter 2 of the same book, where it says, for it was fitting that he, by, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, right? So that's something that we see earlier in the same book. Now again, this is not saying that he was made morally perfect, he always was morally perfect. But rather, since he experienced what it was like to obey through suffering, and having perfectly obeyed the will of the Father, and having been tempted as we are, yet without sin, what happens? He has become fully qualified to be our Savior. He is perfect in that way. What does he have to do to become the perfect sacrifice, to become the source of eternal salvation. He had to become a man. He had to experience weakness. He had to be perfect. He had to be the spotless lamb. And he had to be able to sympathize with the people whom he is helping and be made like his brothers in every respect so that he could become this perfect 
sacrifice. So when you see Jesus was made perfect through his suffering, it's saying through the process of suffering, he became the perfect and only Savior that can deliver us from our sins. Having been through the gauntlet of human suffering, he emerges through the other side as the perfect and spotless lamb who is qualified to, number one, be the source of eternal salvation, and number two, be designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so Christ has done all this for you, and he stands ready to help you now as your great high priest. Any thoughts, questions before we continue forward? All right. In verse 10, hey, look who we see again. Melchizedek's back, all right? Who is this Melchizedek, and what's the significance of this in relation to Christ as our high priest? This is really, really important. The author of Hebrews really wants to get into Melchizedek. He wants to dive into this deep theological treatise. But you're just not ready for something that deep yet. At least the original readers weren't, okay? You might be. But the original readers weren't ready for it yet. He's going to take a deep dive into Melchizedek in Hebrews 7. But he has to address a problem with the readers first. Look in verse 11. About this... We have much to say. About what? About this Melchizedek guy. Oh, we have so much to say about Melchizedek. Oh, it's so cool. He, he, he wants to geek out about Melchizedek and, and unpack these deep and significant truths. He has so much to say about it, right? So much to say. But he is aware of his audience, and he knows there's a problem with their spiritual condition. What is the problem? They are dull. Dull of hearing. And because they're dull of hearing, what's the problem? It, they're not ready. It's, it, it's hard to explain. Is it hard to explain because the topic is too complex? Right, so I'm sure there's some complexity to this, but that's not the main reason why it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain because they are dull of hearing. Side note, right? Teachers, this is an important observation for you. Just because you're excited about a deep truth doesn't mean your hearers are ready for it, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Part of teaching is having an awareness of where your audience is. Right? If they are still in the milk stage, if Linda is teaching her, her kindergartners, and, he, and she says, let me go through the deep theological ramifications of the Melchizedekian priesthood, right? They're going to be like, what? Right? So you want to have a sense of awareness. If they're still in the milk stage, your goal is not to force feed meat to them, right? But rather help them go from milk to meat. So it's the author's goal to move past milk to meat, but he acknowledges that he needs to get them ready first. And so he says about this, Melchizedek, I have so much to tell you, but it's really hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. And what does he... He basically calls them out. Look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. Now this is a common analogy, milk and meat, milk and solid food. Um, is he saying that drinking milk is bad? No, of course not. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So if you're a new Christian, don't go for the meat, go for the milk. As a newborn infant, long for that pure spiritual milk. And just as it's strange for a mature Christian to be stuck in the milk stage, it would be unhealthy for a new Christian to be force-fed meat. So the problem is not with the milk. The problem is the fact that these hearers, by this point, should have been what? They should have been teachers. They should have been mature. They should have been far beyond milk. They should have been carnivores by now, right? They're still having trouble understanding the basics. And he's telling them, listen, guys, you've been Christians long enough. You should be super excited about Melchizedek, but you're not, all right? You're still at, like, Christianity 101 stuff. And so a question for us, right? Should you be further along in your faith than you are right now? Are you malnourished, right? Are you underdeveloped? Are you content with staying at the milk stage, or is there a desire in you to progress and to grow, to, to go deeper into scriptural truths? Paul, Paul issues a similar rebuke to the Corinthian church. Corinthian, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where he says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as carnal, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh, and are you not of the flesh in behaving in only a human way? So in the same way, the Corinthian church weren't ready for the deeper stuff, although they should be. And what was the reason in the Corinthian passage why they weren't ready? What was their problem? They were selfish. They were filled with, it says, um, jealousy and strife. And so they're behaving in a carnal way, and so therefore they're not ready for deep spiritual maturity. So they're not ready for the deeper stuff because of a moral deficiency. And that's what's keeping them from growing in spiritual maturity. They're stuck in the milk stage. Mike. It seems to me when I read this that it looks like that they reached the plateau. It says, since you became. Um, so they looked like they were progressing, and then all of a sudden they kind of hit a plateau and just didn't hmm. progress any further. That's what it looks like. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, so you've become. So this is a new development, it seems like. Right? You've been growing. You've been growing. Yeah. And again, if we connect it with uh, that these are Hebrews that are kind of wrestling with kind of clinging on to Judaistic ways, that what he could be referring to is the fact that they've been growing in Christ, their love and grace, and now they're starting to see this break. Oh, Christ is better than these other things. Christ is, is the better sacrifice. He, I don't need these human high priests. I have a great high priest. And, and maybe that tension is starting to rise where they're like, hmm, that's getting uncomfortable. And so you, you pull back or you plateau. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Or it could just be progressive sanctification like with us. Right? We grow and we backslide a little bit and we grow more. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, David's, David's saying oftentimes we think of 
progressive sanctification like this. Is that how progressive sanctification is like? No, right? It's like this, right? Okay. But it's, it still trends upward, right? It still trends upward. Eventually. Now, but that, now again, he doesn't allow them to be content with their plateau stage, right? So again, perhaps the, the Hebrew listeners were, were going fine, right? And then they just kind of go, and they're stuck, right? They're not moving forward. And he's like, don't be happy with that. You're, you're, you're getting dull, right? You're getting, you're getting lazy. So in, the, in, the, in terms of the Corinthian church, which I cross-referenced, they were inhibited by their jealousy and strife. And so if we're being governed by fleshly appetites, if we're characterized by strife and jealousy, rather than Christ-like love, you will not have an appetite for deeper spiritual truths. You just won't. You'll be just fine with the milk. And you won't move very far past that. But the readers of Hebrews had a slightly different problem. It wasn't strife and jealousy. What was it again? What was their problem? Dullness. And what does this mean? What does dull mean? Slow. Slow. Yep. Lazy. They were probably comfortable with where they were. Okay, so maybe you could say apathetic, right? So. Yes, so not, and it's definitely connected. So, so the laziness results in not paying attention, right? So the word dull, so that's what like King James, ESV, NASB, they use the word dull, um, which is a good translation. The, the word also can mean sluggish, mean lazy. Uh, the, the CSB translates this phrase this way. It's difficult to explain because you have become too lazy to understand. And there's the connection, right? You're lazy, leading to a lack of understanding. The NIV says it's hard to make clear to you because you, are no, long, you no longer try to understand. It's a lack of effort. It's a laziness. It's a dullness. It's a sluggishness. It's an apathy. So these readers, they weren't invested enough in it. They were treating Christian doctrine like a high schooler treats his least favorite subject in school, right? He doesn't try to understand the teacher because he hates this subject, or he doesn't care about this subject. It's not something he's invested in. And all he hears is that what want, what want, what want, right? It's just, I don't, I'm not invested in this. One commentator says, it, put it this way, the intellect is not over ready to, under, to entertain an idea that the heart finds unpalatable. The intellect is not over ready to entertain an idea that the heart finds unpalatable. More straightforwardly, you'll only seek to understand the things you want to know. And these readers have become lazy. Their apathy towards spiritual truths is keeping them as spiritual infants far longer than they should be. They ought to be teachers at this point. But their laziness has held them back. If you feel like you should be further along in your knowledge of Scripture than you are right now, if you feel like you're still on milk when you should be eating meat, realize there's many potential reasons for that. Sometimes it's because you, have been, uh, you, you haven't been given the instruction that you wish you had. Oftentimes Christians are malnourished because a shepherd hasn't moved past the milk stage. Right? And every, every sermon you hear 
every lesson you hear taught is just milk. And it never moves past it. And that just kind of becomes your diet. And, and especially for a new Christian, you don't know any different, right? Sometimes it's just because you're a new Christian, and that's fine. All these doctrinal and deep truths feel above your head, and you feel bad about your lack of understanding. Don't be, right? Don't feel bad about that. That's fine. Long for this pure spiritual milk so that you can grow. So don't jump to meat too quickly if you're a new believer. It's good that you're in the milk stage. In verse 13, it says, Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. That's normal, right? You wouldn't expect a child to have the same strength or competency as an adult. But sometimes you're living on milk because you're living in the flesh. You're filled with jealousy and strife like the Corinthians. Or sometimes it's just because you're apathetic and you're lazy towards spiritual truths. There's other things you'd rather think about and grow in. And so he calls these readers out. I mean, imagine being the readers who like got Paul's letter, or not Paul, I just, we don't know if it's Paul, right? The guy's letter, uh, and, they, and they get to this section that's talking about the high priest and all these glorious truths, and then you just get called out, right? You guys are lazy, that's basically what he's saying. And so let's ask the question, is it worth it to move from milk to meat? Absolutely. Let's see how this passage tells us that. All right, so milk is contrasted with what? Solid food, all right? Um, a child is contrasted with what? The mature, all right? So a child is someone who is unskilled in the word of righteousness. So this is someone who just doesn't know how to do what is white. What, right. What about the mature one? This is one who is able to distinguish good from evil. Right? That's down here at the end of the verse. The mature are able to distinguish good from evil, and that is in contrast to unskilled in the word of righteousness. So how does one become mature? We see the process as well. Where do we see the process of growing from unskilled in the word of righteousness to discerning good from evil. Can anyone spot the phrase? All right, good. So, yeah, the powers of discernment trained by constant use, constant practice. And check out the words that he used here. So trained comes from the Greek word Jumnazo. All right. What English word do we get that from? Jumnazo. Gymnasium. All right. Constant practice is the Greek word exis. What do you think English word comes from that? Exercise. Exercise. So what do we mean by trained by constant practice? It's, it's being, it's like working out, exercising, training. And what are we training? Our powers of discernment. This is one Greek word that refers to your capacity to make moral decisions. And namely, to distinguish between good and evil. 
Yeah, discernment. So your moral discernment is being trained by constant practice. But what are you training with? What's your, what are your weights? What, what are you training with? The word. That's right. The word of righteousness, right? So a child is unskilled in it. But what is, how do you grow from unskilled to having your powers of discernment? Well, you're training constantly in the word of righteousness. So again, as we look at this exhortation to the readers, you're lazy. You're, you should be teaching by now, right? You should be telling me this stuff. But you're lazy. You've grown apathetic. And if you ever want to go from milk to meat, what do you have to do? You have to be a zealous student of the Bible. Be a spiritual gym rat. Don't just be satisfied with the basic stuff, with the milk. It's exactly what you need when you're new in the faith, but if you've been here a while, it's time to increase the weights. Right? If you're ever with a trainer and you're in the, in the gym and, and you've got a, a comfortable weight and you've got it down, what are they going to tell you to do? It's time to bump it up. Right? It's, I'm really impressed that you got those 45-pounders down. Right? But you're not supposed to stay there. Right? You're supposed to progress past that. Is that how we view our knowledge of Scripture? Like we grow in a, in a knowledge and truth of God's Word and then we think, awesome. On to the next one. Right? Or do you think you plateau? You know what? I think I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm where I'm at. Well, verse 14 tells us the negative result of that is you don't grow in discernment. You don't grow in your ability to apply the Word of God to normal life. But through constant practice, constant practice, your ability to use the Word of God to navigate through difficult moral decisions you face will grow stronger and stronger. Now, just at the face of it, is it important for us to be able to navigate the difficult decisions that we face with the Word of God? Yeah, it is. Man, we face those. Have you ever felt just completely unequipped? Like you're facing a moral quandary and you're like, I wish, I wish I knew how to take the word of God and apply it to this situation. We've all been there, right? Because none of us are, are spiritual bodybuilders, right? We, we, we're, we're all in process. But how do we grow in that? We practice, Right? We, we, we become more knowledgeable in the Word. We love the Word. We pursue the Word. We won't get there if we're lazy. It's almost like the author felt that when he said, after the order of Melchizedek, he heard yawns. Instead of, tell me more. Right? Do you want to enjoy the depths of God's Word? Well, then you have to start training in it. Don't be content with milk. Move on to maturity. And so we've looked at two main portions here. Number one, why should we be confidently running to Jesus, to the throne of grace? It's his job. He's good at it. He's gentle. And he's accomplished eternal salvation for you. So you should have no hesitation to run to him. And then we've looked at the reality that we need to be digging in deep. We need to be growing. We need to be maturing so that we can grow in our discernment to know good from evil. Any thoughts, questions, or comments? Paul. 
it takes effort. It doesn't happen by osmosis. That's true. And that's, that's very evident in this passage, isn't it? It takes effort. And that's grace-filled effort, right? God gives us the grace to train. But we cannot sit here and think, you know what? If I just coast, it'll come to me eventually. You know, I'll figure it out as I go. Oh, no, it won't, right? You, you, have, to, you have to be in it. You have to pursue it. And it's worth it. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it doesn't work to put your put your Bible under your pillow and hope that the contents just kind of soak into your brain. That's just not how Bible knowledge works, right? Um, but uh, but we need to be focused and pursue it. Yes, Becky. Yeah, Becky made the point that oftentimes we feel like we're, we know it all, we're in a good spot, and God in His grace brings us into times where He shows us we don't, right? And, uh, you know, just if we go with the gym analogy, right? You, you, you get strong, you get fit, right? And you're like, yeah, I'm looking pretty good. I'm feeling really strong, I'm feeling really healthy. And then, you know, that other person walks by, and you're like, oh, man, I've got a long way to go, right? And, and so, or you try to lift something, and it's just not quite... It's not, you're not as strong as you thought you were, right? When we plateau, God in His grace puts us in situations where we realize, I'm still weak. I still need to grow. I still need to pursue Christ. And that's a great time when you find yourself in that situation to do what? Run to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Run to Jesus. And He gives you the grace in those times. Any other thoughts? Mike. It's funny. He, he lays out this date to bring them further yeah. by Melchizedek. Yeah. And if you apply that to the gym, yeah. say a guy's working on this certain equipment, right? Mm -hmm. And the guy says, wait till you see this piece of equipment. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that's right. You're gonna, you know, you're getting them excited about moving forward. Yeah, yeah. And that's the exciting thing. Like, Scripture holds out so many wonderful truths for us <laughs> that are waiting for us if we simply pursue it. And that's the, 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 the truth of Scripture is so simple, I've said this before, that even a child can enjoy the milk of it. But there's so much truth that you can spend the rest of your life growing in your knowledge of it. It's a lifelong quest, and it's a wonderful thing. <coughs> yes? I, it's so exciting when you do get something you know, and you get something going on, and you just, but I think, too, of the times when I've been reading, and Yeah. That that sure. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that hits us every now and then, right? Where instead we hit a truth and we're like, I don't know what that means, and you're like, oh well, forget it, right? I'm just. I'll... Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now again, sometimes you you don't have the time, energy, or capacity to dig down deep, but maybe it's a good opportunity for you to go back to it later and dig into it. If we only can remember what that deep truth was uh, that we saw earlier. That's right. Anything else? Yeah, David. You could think of discernment that's gained by training the word yes. as a Christian superpower. Yeah, <laughs> you could. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it's, and and here's, a, here's a positive thing. There's two ways you can grow in discernment. One is through the word, 
or two is through what? Experience, right? Been there, done that. And that's a way. It's not the best way. And it's not an essential way. Sometimes we, we tell ourselves, the only way for me to grow in discernment is to try it myself. And that can lead to a lot of heartache. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Or books like uh, Ecclesiastes, where the psalmist says, I've tried it, let me tell you my wisdom from it, right? The scripture actually allows us to discern and distinguish without us having to experience all the evil. And so don't, we can't tell ourselves a lie. Well, you know, I just have to, you got to try things out, got to test different, different things, see if it, you know, if I like it or not. No, the way you grow in discernment is to grow deeper and deeper in your knowledge of the word. And as you grow in your knowledge of the word, you see it applied to normal life situations. and You grow in your power of discernment. And it's an encouraging thing. It's such a wonderful moment when you're faced when a, with a difficult situation and a truth from scripture guides you through it. And you have a moral clarity to know how to navigate the situation because of your knowledge of the word. That's a wonderful blessing. Doesn't always happen. Sometimes we wish it did. And if we wish it did, there's only one way to get it, and it's to pursue it. Yeah. Yeah, rightly dividing the word of truth, right? And that is, that is, that is a task for a pastor, that he needs to be doing that, and it's a task for every Christian, right? Study to show yourself approved. And that's the task that we have for us. And we're going to see verse in chapter 6, he's going to say, all right, it's time to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Right? He's like, okay, we're moving past 101. We're about to jump into the deep stuff, so hang on. right? And so he's going to, he's going to move on to the deeper stuff. And chapter 6 is also going to be one more warning passage with some, uh, some difficult things to interpret and work through. But uh, I, I think we'll be able to walk through it with clarity and guidance. But that will be two weeks from now, not next week. Yes? Thinking about the gym analogy and working out and getting yourself all in shape, yeah. the danger with getting real comfortable there is that you stop working out. Yes. You can lose her. You can. Immediately start sliding this way. That's right. So. It's quickly, very quickly, right? <laughs> Faster and easier than it took to get where you had That's a very, yes. That's very true. And the wonderful thing is, this is a, it's a joyful struggle, right? What better thing than to dig into the Word of God? It's not like you're just gritting your teeth and be like, this is the worst thing in the world, but I need to. This is a joyful, this is, this is meat, right? This is a feast that we get to enjoy. Uh, let's close and close a prayer. We'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for this uh, opportunity to look in your Word. I pray you'd help us all to grow in our knowledge of it um, and discernment as a result of it. Lord, I pray you'd help us to run to you as our high priest. We thank you that you're in even now interceding before us and you deal with us gently and compassionately and you've accomplished salvation for us. We thank you for these truths. Help us to guide us, help, help these truths. To